So on this 4th of July, as I uh, tried to think of a sermon that to, to help us as a, as a group of people who are a part of this country, I know this is a strange text to come from. But we live in strange times. Uh, if you think about the fact that for the first time in my life, you've had uh, governors and mayors that have told churches that they can't sing. Um, if you look at Facebook or Instagram, you're guaranteed to find an article in your opening scroll that says that if you don't wear a mask everywhere you go, then you clearly hate everyone and want people to fall over dead around you. And then you'll read the next article that your friend shared will be an article that said, if you wear a mask, you're a sheep and you're an idiot and you look stupid and you're going to die from hypoxia and just fall over anyway. So it's confusing times. And as I thought about what do we as a church in the light of our nation's birthday need to think about, this text came to my mind. I preached on this text several times. Uh, this is the fourth time that I've preached on it since I've pastored here at North Glencoe. In fact, earlier in the week, uh, I was in my office watching myself preach this same sermon from Mark uh, just last year. And Ann walked in and said, so you're watching your favorite preacher, I see. And uh, so the last year when we looked at it, um, I focused on how these temptations are symbolizing three areas of our life that the enemy attacks us. There are three temptations, and, and they are uh, the area of physical needs. The enemy will attack us there. Spiritual needs, the enemy will attack us there. And emotional needs, the enemy will attack us there. I want us to, as we read Luke's story, Luke changes the order that we have it in Matthew and Mark, so it feels kind of out of place that, that Jesus is being carried up on the pinnacle of the, the temple is in a different spot. And... Um, I want us to look at this and recognize that, according to the story, nobody was there but Jesus and the disciples. And yet we have, in all the Gospels, reference to or something about this temptation, which tells me that Jesus, in the life of his disciples, in the three years that he spent with them, had to have talked about what happened because nobody else is there. It's just Jesus and Satan. So Jesus clearly thought this was important enough information that he shared it multiple times with his disciples. They all included it in the gospel. It's important because the way that Jesus is tempted is the same way that we are tempted individually, the same way that we're tempted corporately as a church. In the same way that we're tempted as a nation. The first thing I want us to notice is the text says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus was both full of the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit, and yet he was tempted. It, again, we live in strange times. In the course of the last week, I've had three different people come to my office and say, Preacher, I, I, I'm really struggling with worry. I'm really struggling with anxiety. I'm really struggling with fear. So there must be something broken about my spiritual walk, the fact that I'm being tempted in this direction. 
And I want you to recognize that temptation came to Jesus when he's full of the Holy Spirit being led by the Holy Spirit. Temptation in and of itself doesn't signify that you're out of God's will. God, in fact, is using this temptation of Christ in our lives now as we study it, and God uses temptation in your life. In fact, in the book of James it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We should celebrate and recognize that when we're tempted, when trials come into our lives and we get pulled in this direction or that, that that's God working in our lives to show us that we're dependent on him. In the book of Philippians, we read, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here you have the church in Philippi was clearly very different than North Glen Cove because there's conflict going on in the church. There's these two ladies that disagree with each other. Sometimes that happens in church settings. I know that's shocking to, to you, but sometimes in church we have people who get sideways. And so Synthache and Eodia are uh, sideways about something, and we don't know what they're upset with each other about. Paul writes the whole book of Philippians to push this church to helping these two ladies get along. I beg you, I entreat you, please, ladies, figure it out. Now, it would be easy for us to look at these two people who are in conflict and go, well, one of them clearly doesn't love Jesus. Isn't that how we normally frame things? If you disagree with me, then clearly the problem is your spiritual walk. And yet Paul says they're both fellow workers, they've served Jesus side by side, and their names are written in the book of life. They both love Jesus. They both love the Lord. And yet they cannot agree with what kind of picture frame is supposed to go in the gathering area. And so here they're being tempted to be drawn in this way, and they love Jesus. They've served Jesus together. So I want us to understand that temptation doesn't mean necessarily that you're out of God's will or out of step with God's will. Now, what I'm not saying is, is that we don't recognize that there are things that we can do to protect ourselves from temptation. If you struggle with a temptation to get drunk, don't keep a bar in your house. Or don't, don't go down to the fuzzy duck. If you, like some people I've heard about, struggle eating, I poured that coffee right now in my front, um, struggle with eating problems, if you're like me, you can't, I know, I don't keep Reese cups in the house because if I have them, I'll eat them. That's just the reality. Every Easter and, and Christmas, people here in the church give me lots and lots of candy. And I hide it. Um, and I hide it from the kids, yes, but I also hide it from myself because then through the rest of the year I'll be looking for a pot and I'll go, oh, Reese cup. And this, I only know where one is because I just found it. I know that the way to keep myself from sitting down and eating that whole sleeve, you know, that comes with six individually wrapped Reese cups is by not having it. So I'm not saying that we don't do smart things to protect ourselves from temptation, but I'm saying that just because you're tempted doesn't mean that you're out of God's step. And I think that we all, right now, are being tempted to worry, to stress, to disregard the command, to be anxious for nothing. 
because of the world that we live in. So that was that's the first thing that we see. So let's look at the temptations themselves. And so since last time we looked at them, how there one was physical, one was spiritual, and one was emotional, I want us to look at it from Luke's point of view and see how there are three categories, if you will, of temptations that the enemy still attacks us with today. The first of those temptations is simply, did God really say? The exact same temptation that the enemy used for Eve is the one that he uses for Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. In Luke chapter 3, we read, When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, Jesus, just a few verses before, is baptized, and the Father says to Jesus, You are my Son, I am pleased with you. And what's the first thing that Satan says? If you are the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. The third temptation, Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Jesus wants to understand there would have been nothing wrong with Jesus eating bread. That's one of the things why when I was a kid and I I heard the temptations, I'm like, why would it be sinful for him if he's God? He could turn stones to bread. No big deal. There's nothing sinful about bread. I've never read in the Old Testament, thou shalt not eat bread. Why is this a sin? It's a sin because that's Jesus is being said, God didn't mean what he said. Why don't you take care of this? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like maybe something that we struggle with? God doesn't know what he's talking about. When you heard God said, you are my son, why don't you take care of these stones coming to bread? Why don't you provide for yourself? Why don't you help God out? Did God really say is always the first place that the enemy will attack. Again, we go back to the days that we're living in. Last time I checked, Matthew chapter 10 is still in the Bible, and it still says, do not fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But every hair on your head is numbered. Still in the Bible. Now, for some of us, as we get older, the the count on our head hair has gone down. Uh, God didn't have have to write it in his book of remembrance because it's an easy, easy number to remember. But it's still in the Bible. And yet, as I scroll through Facebook and I see... Or I watch the news as I'm in the doctor's office and they've got it on over my head. And I see what all's happening and how the world is, to to borrow the quote, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. 
Not sure why we're in a handbasket, but that's the quote. Everything seems to be falling apart. Nothing that has been there forever seems to, to be lasting. What do, what do we want to do? Oh my gosh. I know that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but he doesn't have enough for this power bill. Hey, that rhymes. That's a song, brother. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that the plant's going to be open next week. I don't know what's going to happen. Really? Are they changing that? Is that law going to change? What is going on with this? I hope Antifa brings their happy self to my neighborhood. Right? It's still in the Bible. Don't be worried about tomorrow. God's got you. You can lean hard into him. He understands no matter what's going on with your health, no matter what's going on with your finances, no matter what's going on with your perceived ideas of the future, God's got you. Jesus told his disciples, look, don't you know that this bird is sold for like $1.35 at the store and God knows everything that's going on with this silly bird? How much more does your father care about you? It's still in God's word. And where the enemy's going to attack you is, for real? You're going to trust some 2,000-year-old book when everything's falling apart? Did God really mean you when he said, I've got you? When Jesus said, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, was that really talking about you? No, that... The first place the enemy's going to attack us is in our mind, and it's going to be, did God really say? The second place where the enemy attacked Jesus, and the enemy's going to attack you, and the enemy's going to attack this church, and the enemy's going to attack this country, why don't you just take shortcuts and do things for God in man's way? Satan said, took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to you to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Well, in Psalm, the book of Psalms chapter 2, it's, David wrote, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We look to someone other than God for provision. We look to the government. We look to our employer. We look to ourselves, and we say, God, you can't do this your way, so I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do this. I've got this. Doing God's work using man's method. Now, I doubt that anybody watching or anybody here really struggles with, okay, so how, how is it God? So I, I don't know how God's going to provide, so I'm going to go steal some money. Obviously, that would be covered under this, but I don't think any of us struggle in that area. I mean, hopefully we don't. If you do, don't, don't steal. You heard it from the preacher. I want to look at some ways that we do struggle. In Ephesians chapter 1, 
The gospel is summed up this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This gospel that we believe that you called upon to be saved, this gospel says that you in your sin deserve punishment, but that your punishment was meted out upon Jesus on the cross. Every human being who's ever lived, the gospel says, either will take their own punishment for their sin in hell or their punishment for their sin is put on the cross. We believe that and we accept that spiritually. But the idea of the gospel is repeated over and over in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8 and, and throughout the book of Ephesians, throughout the book of Galatians. This idea of the gospel is presented and it's not presented in a track so that you get saved. It's presented as the gospel should have an impact on how you live your life. Now, how? So let's walk through a couple of scenarios. Oftentimes, I do things uh, to disappoint Anne and to make her upset. Now, she doesn't do this, but I've heard, I've read stories in places that sometimes, men, we've done something to upset or disappoint our wife, and our wives will say, uh, it will be upset. And you go walk in and Clearly, there's a cloud over the house, and you don't remember what you did. You pray that maybe one of your kids messed up so that they're the ones in trouble. And you go ask your wife, so how's, how's everything going? And the worst response possible for you to get is, fine. Right? Am, am I the only one that's read, read about this? I've never experienced this. But fine. What, what's going on? What what I do? Well, if you don't know right? And men, we do the same thing. Our wives does something that we don't like, something that upset us. We want to punish them. She hurt me. She's going to pay. I'm going to slam around. I'm going to pout. I'm going to pitch a baby fit. I'm going to make her pay. That is living in the flesh, not living in the light of the gospel. The sin that she committed when she hurt me will either be poured out on Christ on the cross, or she will deal with it for an eternity in hell. That's the only way that that sin can be punished. I can't punish her for it because I'm a sinner myself. If I'm going through the line at Walmart and the lady messes up, I want to punish her, right? Oh my gosh, I've got things to do. I've got places to be. What are you doing? Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move. I want to be angry. And yet Jesus ties our forgiveness to 
our ability to forgive others. Isn't that strange that in the model prayer it says, God, forgive me my sins as I have forgiven those who have sinned against me. They're tied directly together. Why? Because if we don't understand the gospel enough to where we're walking around requiring that everybody else earn my forgiveness, then we clearly haven't been forgiven. That's why it's tied together. And so for me to live in a gospel way, when my kids mess up, it's not my job to make them be punished for their bad behavior. Their punishment will either be in hell or it's poured on Jesus. It's my job as a parent to correct them. There's a different heart there. You know that there is. Now to them, that spanking's gonna feel the same whether I label it this is punishment or whether this is correction. But there's a different heart there. And I catch my own heart trending toward I want to punish this person who hurt me. That's not listening to what God's word says. That's me saying, I've got to step along beside God. This person stole from me, they took my money, so I'm gonna help God punish them. We don't trust that God knows how to do it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We say, God, you're clearly not gonna be able to handle this, so I'm gonna make them pay. That is not living our lives in the light of the gospel. We read God's word, we bring it in, we let it ferment in our heart, and we let it change us. That's how we fight temptation. Let's look at another example. So we see living our life in the light of the gospel is one of the ways that we can come along beside God. A second way that we can do that, we read in 1 Thessalonians this. But we do not want you to be ignorant, my brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God has declared by word from the Lord what your future looks like. God has told you in his word what is in your, your. Not some ethereal person, not some fictitious person we label Christian. In your life, in the future. And it is for good. The verse that I read earlier, Jesus said, don't fear those that can harm the body. There is nothing in this life that can take your salvation away from you. What do we have to worry about? Your future has been stated. When you take your last breath, your next step is written down in that book. So if tomorrow you find out that you've got all the COVIDs that there ever was, I'm not saying that we throw a COVID party for it, but we don't sit around and go, oh no, God has never paced the portals of heaven and said, what do we do next? Your future if you look at your worst case scenario, you die. Your next step is in the presence of your king. 
God has told us our future, and yet the enemy's in our head saying, did God really say? Or saying, God can't handle this. God can't handle the political upheaval. What are we going to do? Oh my gosh, we've got to do something. We've got to fix this. No, no, a thousand times no. Your worry is not going to fix anything. Let it drive you to your knees. Let your mourning, your desperation for what's going on in our world cause you to pray, but not worry. God does not need your help. God does not need Tommy Harrison to come up with a plan. He's got a plan. He needs me to get on board. And so we try to help God, just like Satan is telling Jesus to, why don't you help God out? The enemy is trying to convince us. Why don't you hook God up? The final thing is this. Final thing I'm pointing out, the whole Bible's full of places where God has declared the way things are that we want to help him. But the final one I want to look at is we've looked at uh, our position in Christ and the gospel living. We've looked at future. In Hebrews 9, we read this. He, Jesus, entered once for all in the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Typically, in the church, people go in one or two extremes. The extreme over here is, I know the Bible says I'm forgiven, but i got to punish myself. I've got to help God out. I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to say I can't do anything to serve him. I've got to punish myself. I've got to beat myself. I've got to help God out. Or the extreme over here is, well, God's going to forgive me so I can do whatever I want to do. Both of these are contradicted by this text. One, once you have confessed your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Once you have repented and turned from your sin, the judge who is to judge you is also your redeemer. There's no one else to bring an accusation. Romans chapter 8, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? There is none. So why do you think you can limit what God's done in your life? Why do we believe the lie that because I did this, 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 and this, God can't use me? Yes, there are consequences to sin. When we go back to 2 Samuel, we're going to see all kinds of consequences poured out on David. God still used him. As Matt showed us last week, that once we repent, once we're forgiven, God loves to take broken things and use them to his glory. And on this side, over here, on a regular basis, I will have people come to me and say, I just don't understand why my spiritual life is so dull. I want to have the joy of the Lord that I used to have. 
So walk me through your quiet time. Well, I don't really, don't really have a whole lot of time for that right now. Walk me through how you're, what you're praying for. Well, you know what? I'm in the car. Sometimes I'll, I'll pray for some stuff. And it surprises you that the only thing coming into your mind is what you're watching on Netflix, what you're listening to on the radio, is all that's coming in and you're expecting to be walking in the joy of the Lord? No, we are redeemed here for good works. And so there's a balance there where we rest in what God has done for us and we do the things that he's commanded us to do and then we let him do the work inside of us changing us. And yet we want to either take ownership over here or ownership over here. And what this text in Hebrews is saying is, God's the one at work. And just like the enemy tempted Jesus, he's going to tempt you to go in one of those two extremes. Uh, let me be honest with you. My own life, in the course of a week, I've been over here, and then I correct over here. I've done both. Rest in who God has said you are. Okay. So we've seen how the temptations work, and as weird as it sounds, we see how the temptations are fought. Every time, Jesus, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, every time he responds to Satan, he does so with God's word. Every time that Satan comes at him, Jesus comes back to him with what God has already said. If you want to fight temptation, if we as a church want to fight temptation, if we as a country want to fight temptation, we have got to be Bible-saturated. We have got to ooze God's Word. We've got to be memorizing it. We've got to be reading it. We've got to be meditating on it. God's Word is where our power is. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We've got to be careful about what we're allowing to replace God's Word. I shared with you two weeks ago, um, I have started in my own life, uh, again, just for no other reason than because I, I need to check on the church to make sure that there's nobody sick or in the hospital or anything going on like that. I now, I will check Facebook for about 30 minutes in the, in the morning, and I have a set time to do it, and I don't open it the rest of the day. It's been glorious when people come up and go, did you hear about... Did you hear that Kanye's running for president? No, I didn't hear it because I'm, I'm not on the Facebook. Did you know that this person said that this is going on in Glencoe? And, ah! No, I'm just blissfully ignorant. I have no idea. I'm cutting out that junk out of my life, and I'm replacing it with God's Word. This week, Bobby uh, Washburn came to see me, and he, he suggested, and he made me, Take an, take an oath, uh, if you know Bobby, uh, so uh, that every night before I go to sleep, the last thing that I would do would be to read the Bible. And he, and he said, I have found that as I do that, that I dream about God, and I dream about God's Word. On the first night that I did that, I just finished teaching on Job, and so I was re-reading through Job um, went on Wednesday night, 
And so I went to sleep, and I did dream about God's Word, but I dreamed about friends arguing with each other. I really did, because, you know, the, the, the three friends that come to see Job and argue with him. So it wasn't as helpful as I wanted it to be that first night. But spend time saturated with God's Word. Recognize the enemy that's coming for you. Recognize what he's doing. And then when you see those temptations, did God say, can God really do that? Why don't you help God out? Your response should be biblical. Father God, Lord, I pray that you apply your word to our hearts, that we would not sin against you. Lord, I pray that we would be your people. Lord, we pray for your healing on our country, your protection on our church, and wisdom for our leaders. Lord, I pray that we would be known as people of the book. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Real quick in closing, uh, I know everybody's anxious to get more information about what's going to happen as far as step one, step two, step three. Uh, we, as a staff, are going to be meeting Tuesday afternoon to, to kind of review and go over and look at what's going on with the numbers in our community and, and just kind of have an idea and then put together something that I will take to the elders Wednesday and uh, let them vote on whether we move to step two or stay in step one. So uh, look Wednesday for that information to come out uh, on the face pages or the Instagrams and, and Twitter and uh, wherever we can put that information out that I just told you not to look at. Um, so that will be happening. We will not have services this Wednesday night. We'll record the Wednesday night session, but... Um, we will let you know about next Sunday whether we're going to have normal services, we're going to stay in this, we're going to modify it. Uh, we're, we're just trying to be flexible. Pray for the leadership as, as we try to make decisions and we're having to be a lot more fluid and, and just wise as we move forward to, to protect people um, and to keep people from get, getting sick. Um, and I thank you for your patience in that. Uh, there will be, again, as, as Matt said, if you are watching online, you can text to 84321 to give, or there will be ushers, for those of you who are here, uh, just put, put your gift in the offering plate on the way out. Anything else? Father God, Lord, I pray that you would go with us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you that Don and Rebecca are back home. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the healing that we've seen and uh, Aaron Gulledge and Eli's life. Lord, we thank you for uh, the way that, that you've protected folks in this church. Lord, we pray that your hand would continue to be on folks. I pray for Dalton uh, Bradley, Lord, that you would continue to heal him. Lord, we pray for Glenda Graves. Lord, we pray for any who uh, is in the church who is ill. Lord, I pray especially right now for Miss Whaley, Lord, that you would, would give her peace. Lord, help her as she is really struggling with where she is right now, Lord, that she would feel the love of your people. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the way that you've blessed us, the way you've protected us, and Lord, we thank you for this country that you've given us to live in. Lord, I pray that we would protect um, and cherish the, the legacy that you've left us with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go serve your king.